You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much. And if you're not a member, consider joining. Members get extra episodes just for Patreon subscribers and all our episodes ad-free. Membership starts at just $2 a month. Go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl for more info. And as always, thanks for listening. I am B.T. Newberg of the brand new podcast, The History of Sex. We explode gender norms by exploring their incredible variety across time. In today's culture of gay marriage, trans rights, and a new politically correct term every day, things can feel a little chaotic. It makes you long for the good old days. When men were men and women were women, and nothing could be more clear, right? Well, sorry to break it to you, but... Those days never existed. If there's one thing the history of sex teaches us, it's that sex and gender have varied fantastically across different eras and cultures. For example, did you know that the Nazis encouraged young women to bear a child out of wedlock for the fatherland? Or that pre-contact Hawaii had no such thing as marriage? Or that ancient Romans had no concept of orientation, only a vague sense of preference for one sex or the other? That's the kind of stuff that we'll be covering in our new podcast, The History of Sex. Find us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get podcasts. The History of Sex. I will send a fully armed battalion to remind you of my love. You invite her to dinner. She takes it as an opening salvo. Her reply is a silken command, wrapped in a request. You pick up the subtext at once. You don't send the invitations. I do. You've always rather liked a challenge. It's evening when you go down to the riverbank, accompanied by your friends and lieutenants. What you see makes you all fall silent. Somehow, Cleopatra has brought the constellations down from the sky to alight in the trees. They flicker and sparkle, the branches shivering in the breeze from the river. The line of tents glows before you like silken lanterns, luminous lungs. Inside the tent, the air is sultry. A banquet has been laid out fit for the gods, foods you could not name, glowing like gems in the firelight. There is nothing here not gilded in silver or gold or upholstered in vivid reds and purples, shot through with gold thread. You've never seen dye so expensive, deep enough to drown in. 
But of all the wonders here, it's the woman you can't take your eyes from. She rises from her couch when you enter, dressed in silk and white, adorned with silver and fiery amethyst, a ring on every finger. She glides forward to meet you. You've seen her before, but always from afar, always dazzling and distant and Caesar's. Up close, she is almost overwhelming. Shining black hair and eyes deep as memory. Mark Antony, she says, and you raise her hand to your lips, breathless. You're late. You had words for this woman, something about alliances, promised troops that never arrived. But suddenly none of it matters. You've spent months wearing the trappings of a god, but now here you stand before the real thing. You've never felt more mortal. Nothing to say? A dark brow arches. Very well. I forgive you. A small, secretive smile, and you feel yourself falling, all at once and violently. The tent walls tremble around you. The world is steady beneath your feet. You don't know yet where this will lead you. You don't know yet it will lead you to years sunk in wine and revelry, to passion hotter than the sands of Parthia, to betrayal and reunion and three brave children, and then, finally, to your own bad end. You don't know that yet. But you stand before her and you think, I'd go to war for her. I would. The silence hangs between you, hot and sultry as an Alexandrian dawn. Come, her smile widens. Let Bacchus and Venus revel together for the good of Asia. She takes your hand and you follow her. And not for a minute, not in all the years to come, do you regret it. I'm the new Isis. And I'm the new Dionysus. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. <laughs> In our last episode, Mark Antony met Cleopatra on the banks of the River Tarsus. Mark Antony forgot his agenda of wringing every last penny out of his eastern provinces while rearranging dynasties to suit his political benefit and sleeping with client kings' wives, and devoted himself full-time to feasting and drinking with Cleopatra. It was a magical whirlwind romance, and when Cleopatra went home to Alexandria, Antony forgot about restructuring the eastern provinces, preparing for the war in Parthia, or shoring up his power in Rome. He filed all that under This Can Wait and followed Cleopatra to Alexandria. Mark Antony arrived in Egypt in November of 41 BC, and Cleopatra gave him a very, very warm welcome. If he'd thought the feasting, drinking, and partying were incredible in Tarsus, what greeted him in Alexandria put those revelries to shame. The people of Greece and Asia had proclaimed Mark Antony the new Dionysus, and Cleopatra made it her business to treat him as if he was the god of wine and revelry in the flesh. Julius Caesar would like to reiterate that Antony is a fucking scoundrel. Thanks, Julius Caesar. My heart is deeply broken. Are we going to get the poetry now or later? If I let you listen to the incredible works of my heart, will you promise not to laugh like the pirates? I promise nothing. And I can give you no poetry. You open yourself to ridicule when you come on this podcast. That's always been the deal. You can't handle the greatness and depths of my heart. So Julius Caesar is upset enough to drop the third person, I noticed. They thought stabbing me 40 times would be enough. But no, it was this, the final blow. All right, we're going to move on. I thought you ladies were my friends. We're moving on. This isn't about you, Caesar. Moving on. Antony and Cleopatra founded a club they called the Imitable Livers. It's the Inimitable, Inimitable Livers. Inimitable Livers. Inimitable. I can't pronounce this. Every time this comes up, we struggle with it. Inimitable. This is going to be my robot rowboats <laughs> for the ages. It's a club to spank your liver. Poor livers. 
They do so much for us. Anyway, this was an extremely expensive drinking club. So every day they threw lavish feasts for each other, as you do, each of them trying to top the other in their outrageous expenditures. There's a fun story that comes to us from these unforgettable banquets. Pliny the Elder tells us that Cleopatra made a bet with Mark Antony that she could throw the most expensive dinner ever thrown in the history of the world. Cleopatra, according to Pliny, owned the two largest pearls in the known world. They had been left to her by other client kings from realms in Asia. Pliny says, quote, when Antony was stuffing himself daily with rare foods, she proudly and impertinently, and this is Pliny clearly has a raging agenda here. I'm just going to tell you what he says. She, quote, proudly and impertinently like the royal harlot that she was. Oh, fuck you, Pliny. Pliny is enjoying himself imagining the royal harlot right now. Slut shaming Cleopatra. What a dick move, Pliny. Dick move, but you know you want that. You just can't touch it, and that's why you're mad. Sneered at his attempts at luxury and extravagance. When he asked her what could be added in the way of sumptuousness, she replied that she would use up 10 million sesterces at one dinner. And I've seen the amount this was really worth estimated at anywhere from half a million dollars to $28 million in today's money. And I'm definitely going to lean toward the bigger number here because it's just more fun. I kind of think Mark Antony wouldn't know the difference anyway, though, because he can't count past 12. There's literally no proof except Caesar told us. I actually, given what we know about Mark Antony, I believe him there. Mark Antony's eyes got round as saucers at that figure because it sounded lawfully big, but he didn't know really how much that was. And he said, I don't actually think it's humanly possible to spend that much on one dinner, Cleo. And Cleopatra said, challenge accepted. So the two made a bet. The next night, Cleopatra threw Mark Antony a lavish dinner. And of course, it was utterly magnificent, as you would expect. But Mark Antony had been hanging out with Cleopatra for a while now, and this was just a basic Tuesday for her. It wasn't like more lavish than the lavish dinner party they had last week. So like, come on, Cleo. Right. Jeez, Cleo. This is just Tuesday at this point. This is Tuesday. My liver isn't even punished at this point. It's still looking kind of perky for a typical Tuesday. Mark Antony leaned back in his chair and laughed and said, looks like you lost this one, babe. Cleopatra said, just you wait, motherfucker. Cleopatra told him she would consume the multi-million dollar portion of the evening all by herself. She called for dessert and her servants brought her only one dish full of vinegar. Cleopatra took one pearl out of her ear, the massive, beautiful pearl renowned throughout the world, and dropped it into the vinegar where it dissolved into slush. She then drank it down. Their mutual friend, Lucius Plancus, had to stop her as she went to dissolve the other pearl. Everyone laughed as Cleopatra was declared the winner. So that was how one of these banquets went down. With lavish expenditures, drinking and food, and lots of teasing and flirting and extravagant bets. It's just one more night with the inimitable livers. I just can't see Julius Caesar and Cleopatra behaving that way. They did have a lot of lavish banquets after the Alexandrian War, so maybe. Not like that, though. That's just, like, so excessive. Do you think Mark Antony just encouraged Cleopatra's, like, most excessive side? I think so. And I think it was sort of like... Mark Antony, I feel like, probably had the attention span of, like, a mayfly. So it was just like, I have to kind of, like, keep him engaged, I guess, 
this is what I'm going to do. Whereas like Julius Caesar was like, I have to keep him engaged with my intellect and wit and the things I know. It's two different challenges, you know, because with Antony, you have to keep topping yourself to keep him interested, right? Totally. Plutarch tells us a story that was passed down to him from his grandfather who claimed he knew a guy who knew a guy who was a cook in Cleopatra's kitchens. According to Plutarch, the cook invited his grandfather's friend to see the preparations for one of Cleopatra's famous suppers. The friend was amazed at what he saw. In addition to vast amounts of other dishes in stupendous qualities, eight whole wild boars were roasting in the kitchen's immense fireplaces. The friend turned to the cook and said something like, wow, must be a huge party. And the cook replied that actually, no, it was only about 12 people, but nobody knew when Mark Antony might be hungry. Quote, for it might happen that Antony would ask for supper immediately and after a little while, perhaps would postpone it and call for a cup of wine or engage in conversation with someone. So not one, but many suppers are arranged for the precise time is hard to hit. Think of the waste. Oh, there's a lot of waste here. There's just so much waste. And also the amount of labor the people have to do so that you can just call for food whenever you want it. And it's not as if like we can be sure they were getting paid for their labor because they probably weren't. Yeah, some of these people were slaves. I don't know what the ratio to slaves versus like paid people were working in Cleopatra's kitchens, but many of the people in there were slaves. Exactly. So ugh. I totally agree. So Cleopatra pulled out all the stops to keep Mark I have the attention span of uh, Mayfly. Antony entered and interested. Plutarch says she was constantly, quote, contributing some fresh delight and charm to Antony's hours of seriousness or mirth, kept him in constant tutelage, and released him neither night nor day. She played at dice with him, drank with him, hunted with him, and watched him as he exercised himself in arms. Probably naked. I think, let's be honest, he was just hefting his wine goblet at this point in time. Let's be clear. Cleopatra was working overtime here to completely stay manage this relationship. She basically made Mark Antony her full-time job. In addition to, you know, her other full-time job, which was not a side hustle by any stretch of the means, which was ruling her country, you know, the most expensive client kingdom that Rome had. Yeah, the biggest, most complicated, most richest, expensive client kingdom in the Roman Empire. Which wasn't quite an empire yet, but we don't know what to call it. Roman Empire slash consulship of Octavian and Antony something something. And Lepidus, general chaos. Oh, right. <laughs> Lepidus. I forgot about Lepidus like everyone does. How could you forget about general chaos? And I have to stop here and pull out another comparison between Caesar's time in Alexandria and Mark Antony's. If you'll remember from the Cleopatra episodes in our Caesar arc, Julius Caesar rolled into Alexandria in 47 BC, so about six years ago, I think, with his red cloak and his crowd of lictors flashing his eagles everywhere and immediately antagonized the Alexandrian mob. He then spent the next 10 months barricaded in the palace, fighting a brutal urban war against a populace that absolutely loathed and despised him and wanted to rip his limbs off. Six years later, Mark Antony showed up wearing Greek clothes and none of the trappings of Roman power and and while Caesar couldn't walk down a street in Alexandria to just stop at the bodega and get a cup of coffee without attracting an angry mob who wanted him dead, Mark Antony loved going out in the streets and mingling with the people. Of course, Mark Antony did go around going to plays, attending lectures, drinking and carousing. He even visited the tomb of Alexander the Great, which was a popular tourist attraction in Alexandria. But one of Mark Antony's favorite things to do was go out at night in Alexandria with his friends, dressed as commoners. He'd lurk around the windows of people's houses, peering in and making fun of people. He thought that this was hilarious. 
I mean, that is being a peeping Tom and kind of perverted. Could you just imagine just sitting down to dinner at like your dinner table and all of a sudden there's Mark Antony at your window? I live on the American third floor or the British second floor. And when we have double decker buses that go by, I'm always like, can they look in? Can they see what I'm doing? Maybe I should close the blinds. <laughs> now, every time I'm going to think, is Mark Antony looking at me from the top of that double decker bus? He might be just looking at pointing and laughing and like making fun of you to his friends. It's like, what are you laughing at, Mark Antony? It's the last time I do yoga without closing the blinds. So Cleopatra joined in dressed as a serving maiden, spying and joking and making fun right along with him. So it might not just be Mark Antony, let's be clear, spying on you. It might be Cleopatra and Mark Antony. Cleopatra, do better. This is a terrible thing to do to other people. And you're supposed to act like you don't recognize them. That's the other thing about it. That's part of the game. Oh, yeah. I don't recognize the new Dionysus and Isis. They're not blinding me with all their bling. Mark Antony's, you know, disguise ideas are not sophisticated, I imagine. Like, he thinks that if he just wears, like, normal people clothes, that people won't realize it's him. So, the Alexandrians adored peeping Tom Mark Antony. He would go out and party and carouse until dawn. He usually came back beat up because he's looking in your windows, weirdo. But Antony loved this shit. (laughs) I can't quite wrap my head around his sense of humor. I just don't really get it. I don't think anyone does. Anyway, he loved thinking he'd fooled people into believing he was just a regular guy. I mean, he hadn't. Everyone knew it was him. There are many reasons why they knew it was him, Jenny. Do you want me to tell you why? Why? Why did they know it was him? Because he had stamped across his forehead, if lost, to return to Cleopatra at the palace. (laughs) He also had tattooed on his hand, left and right. (laughs) (laughs) So he could tell which hand it was? (laughs) I mean... He didn't really, but maybe. (laughs) We can't prove that he didn't, so maybe he did. Think about it. Consider it. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers... What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? 
But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. So getting back to our story, everyone humored Mark Antony and pretended not to recognize this tall peeping Tom with curly hair. The Alexandrians let Mark Antony wander among them relatively unharmed and even tolerated his insults. I mean, ugh. Why, Mark? Because this is what he thought was funny, and I'm having a hard time with it. <laughs> he has the worst sense of humor. Such a bad sense of humor. Mark Antony, what are you doing? Whereas the Alexandrians were inclined to rip most Romans limb from limb. They cuffed Antony about the ears and gave him a friendly beating and sent him home with all his limbs attached because it did say, please return to Cleopatra. I need all of the bits, especially his veto hammer. Right. That needs to be in place. Please don't take that off. Plutarch says that they used to say that Antony, quote, used the tragic mask with the Romans, but the comic one with them. But wandering around the streets and pretending to be regular folks wasn't the only hijinks that Cleopatra and Antony got up to. We're going to give you one more story about the pranks they used to play on each other. So this one time? <laughs> this one time at band camp? <laughs> <laughs> this one time at band camp, Cleopatra took Antony fishing on the Nile and he absolutely sucked at it. Antony sucks! fishing. Meanwhile, Cleopatra, of course, was killing it, reeling in fish after fish and making it look easy and not even breaking a sweat and just looking fabulous and killing it at fishing. Just being a living goddess on earth, you know. Right. Meanwhile, Mark Antony just could not even catch a minnow. I mean, if you painted this guy in pig's blood and pushed him over the side, he wouldn't catch an alligator. Like, it was that bad. It was emasculating and humiliating. And Antony was sucking at something in front of Cleopatra. So that was a little embarrassing. Julius Caesar would like to remind Antony that he's a cad. You cad. Dick face. Thank you for that contribution, Julius Caesar. That's not a good contribution, Julius Caesar. Do better. I know. Can we have some ancient world insight? Are you just going to be like muttering in the corner like <laughs> like Professor Chaos? Like Lepidus. This is Julius Caesar <laughs> is in the corner muttering to himself and occasionally he bursts in. Julius Caesar would write to remind everyone that Antony was his number two. And you all know what that means. Well, whose fault is that? You picked him, buddy. Yeah, but he's still a giant poo. I recall in the first episode that you ever showed yourself in, Julius Caesar, I was sarcastic and you told me I had to elevate my game. Sarcasm is the lowest form of wit, Jenny Williams, and you can do better. Mark Antony cannot. I disagree. I think scatological humor is the lowest form of wit, and I think you need to elevate your game right now or you don't get to be on the podcast. That's what I think. Do you think this is something I need to do with my time? <laughs> it must be. Other you keep showing up. Well, now you're going to piss him off and we won't get to hear his poetry. We won't get to hear it till the last episode. So I was trying to tell this story before we were um, derailed by Julius Caesar. Who has resorted to poo jokes. So Mark Antony took someone in his retinue aside and ordered this guy to take some fresh fish and dive down under the boat and fasten them onto his hooks so it looked like he'd caught them himself. So Antony's luck changed and he suddenly started reeling in fish after fish like a boss and getting back his big dick energy. And Cleopatra was duly impressed. She praised his skill loudly and at length. Oh, Antony, you're so good at this. Yeah. Look at the scales on that one. Oh, man, you're just pulling in all of these big, muscular, sinuous fish. 
We could feed like a whole three people at one of our banquets. Probably just going to eat bites of it ourselves and then throw it away because that's how we roll. That's how we roll with excess. Oh, Mark Antony with your fishing skills. (laughs) Stop. (laughs) Then at dinner that night, she regaled all their mutual friends with stories of his fishing prowess. Oh my God, you guys, you should have seen how good Mark Antony was at fishing. You should have seen how well he worked that rod, guys. The fishes were so big. When he stuck his rod out, they just jumped onto the boat. Yeah, all he had to do was wave it around a little and like all of a sudden, boom, it's like, Fish a palooza in there. <laughs> I don't know what I'm saying. I'm sorry. No, you don't. I'll try and keep us from being too disgusting. Oh, is that your job, Miss Horse Palace? I don't know where the fuck that came from. <laughs> you think you're the voice of reason in this podcast for some reason, but you're not? No, after Kukal and I realized I was not going to be the voice of reason. It's like Mark Antony and Fulvia up in here. Like, you just, nobody's going to rein anybody in. There's no normalizing factor. There is not. So you got to finish the sentence, babe. So she urged all of their friends to come fishing the next day so they could see how Mark Antony worked his rod. So now Mark Antony had to repeat his trick again because he hasn't magically overnight actually learned how to fish. Oh, no. Make no mistake. (laughs) Exactly. But this time, Cleopatra took aside some servants of her own. She ordered them to swim below the boat and attach salted herring to Mark Antony's hook. Mark Antony reeled in the salted preserved fish to uproarious laughter from all their friends, the crew, and everyone. All of Alexandra's just laughing. Oh God, he was so busted. So busted. And then Cleopatra turned to Antony and said, and we're paraphrasing from Plutarch here, leave the fishing to the locals, babe. Your sport is the hunting of cities, realms, and continents. I mean, well played, Cleopatra. You turned that biting, like, cutting joke into another way to make Antony feel good about himself. I mean, I think that's basically how she did it with him. She tore him down and then built him back up. And probably what she needed to do to keep his raging agenda in check. Well, it's how to keep him interested, you know, just make him feel super bad about himself and then make him feel super good about himself so it feels even better when it happens. Julius Caesar was an excellent fisherman. Oh, was he? I was. I did not need anyone to put any fish on my line. And please, Mark Antony... If you're going to repeat a trick like that, make sure that you bribe both sets of servants so you don't wind up with salted herring on your face. Oh man, I see how you did it, Julius Caesar. I'm on to you. So that was the kind of time Mark Antony was having in Alexandria. He lingered there for probably about five or six months, but the world didn't stop while he was away. The Parthians were getting feisty. They invaded Syria and killed the governor he'd installed there, and things had devolved spectacularly in Rome to the point where his fellow triumvir, Octavian, was now at war with his wife, Fulvia. So while Mark Antony was inimitably living it up in Alexandria and destroying his liver, he was married. We talk about his wife, Fulvia at length in the Fulvia episode, Fulvia, original gangster of ancient Rome, which if you haven't listened to it, question your life, question your choices, question everything. The thumbnail version of that is that Fulvia was a badass woman who led the powerful street gangs. She was a duck's femina, people. She and Antony had been married for about five or six years now, and she'd proven a devoted, loyal ally who worked tirelessly for Antony's benefit while he was busy 
working his rod in the Nile. So Octavian was the grandnephew of Julius Caesar. He'd been named Caesar's heir at 18. He's about 22 at this point in the story. But Antony had been Caesar's right-hand man, his number two, as Caesar told us, for his entire career. And both men saw themselves as the natural heirs to Caesar's legacy. They were bitter rivals, forced for the moment to cooperate. But the second triumvirate could only last for so long. Poor Lepidus, general chaos in the corner. Poor Lepidus, you just want to give him a little scratch behind the ears. You do. So, like we said in the last episode, when Antony and Octavian defeated the last of Caesar's assassins, they divided up the empire between them. Antony got the eastern provinces, and he immediately set out for those, intent on drumming up cash to support his planned invasion of Parthia and drinking and fucking his way across a continent. And from there, he'd sent for Cleopatra to pick up the bulk of the tab. He'd left his wife, Fulvia, in charge of Rome while he was gone. Meanwhile, Octavian had returned to Rome to distribute land grants to the soldiers who'd fought for them. But Fulvia hadn't liked how he did it by taking land from the common people to give to the soldiers, and she kind of had a point there. And she also hadn't liked the idea of Octavian getting all the credit for giving land grants to the soldiers because it meant that when push came to shove, which it would eventually, these soldiers would be more loyal to Octavian than Antony and would probably side with him in a civil war. Things escalated quickly, and soon Fulvia and Octavian were at war. And this was bad news for Antony, who hadn't quite built up his power base strongly enough to challenge Octavian yet. See, that's what he was doing in Alexandria. He was building up his power base. He was all about the base. He was all about that base. The whole point of Parthia was to help him build up his strength to do that. A victory in Parthia would bring him the money, prestige, and battle-tested loyal army he needed to guarantee a win against Octavian. But Fulvia had forced his hand. So sometime, probably in the spring of 40 BC, Antony pried himself away from Cleopatra and sailed to Athens, where Fulvia had taken refuge after Octavian defeated her army. The two had an epic fight. We're not quite sure what Antony said to Fulvia, but what we know is that not long after he left, she fell into a deep depression and died. Now, I call bullshit on that. This is what the ancient sources say. Sure, the ancient sources would say that, because in the end, Fulvia is a woman, and women have to die of heartbreak because they can't be dextemina, because that is unnatural. I suspect what really happened here is she was forced to commit suicide, or she was just murdered. You know, there is actually a branch of scholarship that suspects that she might have been murdered or poisoned by Octavian because the death is awfully convenient. It's super convenient. It makes Mark Antony single and that helps him sort out his alliance with Octavian. And also, I just don't think Fulvia, who ran the street gangs, who raised an army in Antony's name, who fought a war, would sink into a deep depression and die. It's a little bit hard to stomach that after she's been so strong in the rest of her life. Yeah, and that's not to say that people don't sink into depressions and that they don't waste away from grief and things like that. It does happen. I just don't feel like that is necessarily what happened here. It doesn't sound like her, but I will say that, like, if you take it one way and say that maybe she really loved Mark Antony and maybe everything she was doing, she did for him. And maybe whatever he said to her, he wasn't thinking and he was just a war elephant saying really mean things. And maybe it left her suicidal. Like, she was someone who went all out and maybe she went all out in this, too. Fulvia stopped being a part of the male story. So, of course, she must have wasted away and died. But I will say that I think your instinct that this doesn't sound like her is one that definitely other people have had before, too. And that's why there's like a theory that says that, gosh, her death looked awfully convenient and follow the smoking gun on that one. Totally. 
Antony's relationship with Fulvia had been a love match. He'd thrown off his long-term love affair with a glamorous actress, Cythera, to marry Fulvia. They'd had two sons together, probably both named Antonius. (laughs) Actually, I think they were both named Antonius. Of course they were. I'm not even joking. And over the course of Julius Caesar's civil war, dictatorship, and subsequent assassination, these two had dominated Roman politics and the streets, leading gang wars and forcing their agenda through the Senate and setting off a terrifying round of prescriptions that left most of their enemies in Rome dead. For roughly two years, Fulvia and Antony ruled all levels of Roman society, from the streets to the Senate, two ultra-violent, frenzying war elephants who excelled at pouring gasoline on fires. They'd had, in other words, a really good run. But now Fulvia was dead, and whatever Antony's last words to her were, they had probably been devastating to this woman who'd fought for so long and so hard on his behalf. Maybe the argument had even caused her death. Maybe she'd just been poisoned by Octavian. We don't know. Appian tells us that Fulvia started her war with Octavian to draw Antony away from Cleopatra and back to her side. I mean, I don't know. I think she already had plenty of other reasons to go to war with Octavian, and we get the sense that Octavian had the kind of face that made people want to declare war against him. And I also think it's kind of belittling to say that the only reason to start this war was because Antony wasn't at her side. The real reason to start this war was, unlike Antony fucking about in Alexandria, Fulvia's like, if Octavian resettles all the troops, you're going to lose everything you have with these men. Right. I mean, I think she really had her finger on the pulse of what people were thinking on the streets and in the military camps. And I think she was, you know, dealing with that reality in a way that Antony had just pissed off and decided not to deal with because privilege. Absolutely. Appian also tells us that Antony was pretty broken up about Fulvia's death and blamed himself for it. But even so, he repudiated her actions to Octavian, put all of the blame on her for instigating this war, and reswore his friendship and loyalty to Octavian for the time being. And just to show he meant it, Mark Antony agreed to marry again to Octavian's sister, Octavia. I mean, creative names, guys. We haven't gone into like Roman nomenclature and how it works, but it actually might be kind of an interesting little side note. Yeah, maybe it's a mini so, Jenny. Maybe so. So here's where Octavia comes into the story. Octavia was Octavian's older sister, his half-sister, actually. She was six years older than him, and the two were very close. Plutarch describes her as beautiful, intelligent, and dignified, where Fulvia was a fierce war leader who commanded street gangs and armies, and Cleopatra was a captivating seductress, ruler and goddess on earth who spoke nine languages. Octavia was a perfect, unassailable model of Roman womanhood, or at least that's how she's described. Plutarch called her, quote, a wonder of a woman. She'd been married before at the age of 15 to a senator named Marcellus, who was 34 at the time. Yeah. Ugh. Marcellus, if you'll remember from Julius Caesar and the point of no return, was a senator with a raging anti-Caesar agenda who'd tried to have Caesar recalled from Gaul in the middle of the Gallic War. Interestingly, Marcellus and Octavia may have been a love match despite the inappropriate age difference. The year Octavia married Marcellus, which was 54 BC, Julius Caesar put pressure on them to get divorced so that Octavia could marry Pompey. Pompey had been married to Caesar's daughter, Julia, and that marriage had cemented the first triumvirate, the alliance between Pompey, Caesar, and Crassus, also known as the Devil's Three-Way. But Julia had died that year, and Caesar wanted to make sure Pompey remarried to someone in his family, Octavia was his grandniece, so they could keep the triumvirate intact. But Marcellus and Octavia said no to Caesar, no Caesar, no, 
No. They refused to divorce, and just to help them out, Pompey turned Octavia down and married someone else. I didn't want to marry her anyway. What a guy. What a guy. Anyway... Octavia and Marcellus were married for 14 years and had three children together, a son and two daughters. Marcellus died in May of 40 BC. Five months later, at the age of 29, Octavia found herself married to Antony, and this was not a love match. In fact, it was done by a senatorial decree. I mean, could you imagine just if you woke up on a Monday morning and you found yourself married to Mark Antony by senatorial decree? I mean, let's be honest. worse Mondays. I don't know. (laughs) I definitely had worse Mondays and Fridays and Tuesdays. Anyway, Plutarch tells us that the senators, who were desperate to avoid another civil war, I mean, they seem to have one every generation. More than that, like once every couple of years now. Exactly. And they had a lot of hope that Octavia's beauty, intelligence, dignity, and modesty as a perfect embodiment of Roman womanhood would easily win Antony over and get him to stop warring with Octavian, despite that face that you just want to punch, you smug little git. I think it's going to take more than that, but, you know, that's just me. Plutarch says the hope was that, quote, when united to Antony and beloved by him, as such a woman naturally must be, Octavia would restore harmony and be their complete salvation. No pressure. This is all this emotional labor. For Octavia, who already has, like, what, like, three kids to raise? At this point in the story, she just has the three children with her husband, Marcellus, who died. This was a Roman trope, by the way. The idea of women serving as peacemakers for their husbands and male family members, bringing about an end to the war. This goes all the way back to the founding myth of the Sabine women, which is a delightful story about how Rome's first settlers kidnapped and raped the women from a neighboring community. Delightful is deeply sarcastic here and this is like a shit myth. It's like literally the worst founding myth. It's a terrible founding myth. It's like really that's your founding myth and we're gonna aggrandize this society? Seriously? Yeah, if this is how your country was founded, fuck you. Right. Thank you, Jen. I agree. When the women's fathers and brothers then went to war against the Romans, these women came between the two groups of men and negotiated a peace because, you know, now they had children with their new husbands, in quotation marks, and wanted an end to fighting. I've read a few different versions of this story and the way that it was explained to me wherever I was reading this was like, now they were embedded in this new community and they had these new babies and they had these new husbands. And I'm like, well, these are like non-consensual relationships. What is happening here? I mean, we are living in a culture where at any point in time, you can be overrun by other people and taken captive against your will. It is a different society, but also it kind of feels like it's just aggrandizing that. I've read essays about the act of kidnapping women that's reproduced in Greek and Roman myth and how it is frequently aggrandized. And even in art history and like art critique today, it's not called what it is, which is rape. So there's that. And this is just one of many myths that involve that. Anyway, all this emotional labor was now dropped in Octavia's lap, where she was expected to bring her brother and her new husband to a sort of peace, thereby saving the country. So it's like a whole giant serving of like, please be our savior through conforming to the restrictive ideals of womanhood on Octavia's head. Totally. But I also think the interesting thing about Octavia is she is one of the few people who had a legitimately good relationship with him. With who? With Mark Antony? No, with her brother. Yeah, she's like one of two people I can think of off the top of my head who could basically stand to be in a room with Octavian for any length of time without punching him. Exactly. So that is kind of not a dumb match on his part. Exactly. No, I don't think it necessarily is. I think in the beginning, 
Antony didn't necessarily want this marriage either. In the five or six months he'd spent in Alexandria, he'd fallen in head over heels, can't stop thinking about her, can't stop bringing her up in conversation, stupid love with Cleopatra. He was aware, however, that his relationship with Cleopatra gave him an optics problem. Cleopatra was not exactly popular in Rome. In her own country, she was a goddess on earth. In Rome, she was a scheming, amoral seductress who conformed to all the most negative Roman stereotypes about effeminate, luxury-loving Easterners, monarchs, and strong women. While in Alexandria, Antony had mingled with the Alexandrians and adopted some of their customs, which tarred Antony with a kind of an emasculating brush, according to the ancient Romans, and the patriarchy was rank in ancient Rome, so this was the worst kind of brush to be tarred by, according to them. Ugh. Ugh. I mean, that's why the new Dionysus is such a great sort of nomenclature for Mark Antony, because Dionysus is the god of wine revelry. He's effeminate. He's also a revolutionary. That's what we didn't talk about. Hold up. It's the new Dionysus over here. It's the new Dionysus at your window. <laughs> Everyone act like you don't recognize him. <laughs> Octavia, however, solved all those problems for Antony. She was the kind of dignified, modest, virtuous woman the Romans revered. If Antony wanted power in Rome, the best wife for him optics-wise, was Octavia. Plutarch tells us that Antony's, quote, reason was battling with his love for the Egyptian. But eventually, power went out over love. And about six months after leaving Cleopatra, in October of 40 BC, Antony married Octavia. Around the time of his marriage, Antony and Octavian hammered out a treaty, the Treaty of Brundisium. It said the soldiers on both sides were so happy about this treaty that a great cry of joy went up that echoed across the mountains. Everyone was so energetic about expressing their love for this treaty that people got trampled to death and drowned in the harbor. Yeah, I guess they were really enthused. They were so happy. There's not going to be another civil war. We're done with this shit. Yeah, let's drown some people. It's like one of those weird details. It's really just a typical Saturday night for Antony. Like with most things with Mark Antony, stuff got completely out of hand. Very quickly. To mark the agreement, both armies threw massive parties for each other, all of them celebrating the return to peace. Communities all up and down the Italian peninsula feasted, celebrated, and sacrificed to the gods, and Antony minted coins with Octavia's face on them, making her the first Roman woman ever to have a coin with her face on it. Really? <laughs> yeah, because literally every time somebody's face gets on the coin, it's a first time. And we're not just saying that, we're like, that we found it in a source that said it was the first time. Yeah, and every single time we have this with the Caligula episode, we have this with Fulvia. Every single time it's the first time. Antony and Octavian feasted each other too. Octavian in the Roman style and Mark Antony in the Egyptian in Asiatic style, which probably didn't help his optics problem. But even as these dinners were going on, attendees on both sides carried daggers under their clothes just in case the peace broke down. Stacy Schiff says, quote, conspiracies brewed and plots were extinguished throughout the cordial bank so under the bright surface of promised peace, the threat of violence still hummed. But the people were tired of this war, both in Rome and in the countryside. People were overtaxed and starving. The overall sentiment on the streets was that nobody cared whether Antony or Octavian won. The common people just wanted to get on with their lives. Enough already. Now that Antony had married Octavia, the threat of civil war was toned down for now. Two other threats to Rome's stability had to be dealt with. One was Sextus Pompey, Pompey Shark's last living son, who'd taken to a life of piracy on the high seas. Arr. 
after his father was defeated by Julius Caesar. Now Sextus was doing what pirates do, which was terrorize merchants and disrupt grain shipments. By the time Octavian and Antony signed their treaty, seabound trade had ground to a halt and the people in Rome were starving. Just to point this out, Pompey, a generation ago, had eradicated piracy from the Mediterranean and now his son Sextus Pompey was turning to a life of piracy on the high seas. So, Oh, the delicious, delicious irony. Sit with it for a minute. Sit with the irony. We'll wait. Have we sat with it long enough? We've definitely sat with it long enough. All right, moving on. The other threat was the Parthians. They were starting to go on the offensive, attacking and invading Rome's eastern provinces. They'd killed Antony's appointed governor in Syria and driven Herod, Antony's guy in Judea, out of his own country. According to the Treaty of Brundisium, Mark Antony would handle the Parthians while Octavian would deal with Sextus. Antony suggested that Octavian levy taxes on the people of Rome to pay for a war with Sextus, but the people in Rome rioted. They threatened to burn Sextus's mom alive in her own home if a peace wasn't negotiated pronto. Because they did not want another civil war. Of course not, and they didn't want any more goddamn taxes. Right. Octavian himself went down to the forum to try to calm the crowd, but the crowd turned vicious, and Octavian was definitely no Julius Caesar. Everybody wanted to punch this guy. He was almost stoned to death. He had to be rescued at the last minute by Mark Antony, who sent his troops into the forum from two directions, cut his way through a riot, and hauled Octavian out by the scruff of his neck, throwing him over his shoulder in a fireman's lift. And this was all super embarrassing for Octavian. Maybe a little bit emasculating. Buff Mark Antony throwing Octavian over his shoulder. Antony was a paragon of rude health. Swoon. (laughs) I just imagine him being like, he'll be able to lick up my toga! As long as he's not wearing a cheaton, I think he's okay. Anyway, getting back to the situation at hand. Do you think Octavian was wearing underwear at that moment? You know my rule about underwear. I've got a geese about it. She won't speculate on the wearing of underwear. Very limiting for the podcast. (laughs) Very limiting for the podcast. Anyway, people died in the riots. Mark Antony and his soldiers tossed corpses into the river so the public wouldn't actually see how many had died. Under massive public pressure, Octavian and Antony negotiated peace with Sextus rather than going to war. But this piece was hardly rock solid. It's said that to celebrate the treaty, Sextus threw a banquet for Octavian and Antony on one of his ships. During the feasting, one of his generals took him aside and suggested that they just cut the ship's cables, murder Octavian and Antony right there, and take Rome for themselves. It would solve a whole bunch of problems right in one fell swoop. Totally. It's what I would do. Is it fell swoop or is it swell foop? I think it's fell swoop. Swell foop. Fell swoop. (laughs) (laughs) Sextus replied that a man of his honor and integrity couldn't possibly agree to do such a thing, and he kind of wished his general had just done it already without asking for permission. Exactly. It's better to ask forgiveness than permission. Just pick up what I'm putting down here, would you? Meanwhile, it was still Antony's job to handle the Parthians. But instead of doing it himself, because why, he sent a general of his, a guy named Ventidius, to go drive the Parthians out of the eastern provinces for him while he spent the winter in Athens with Octavia and their newborn daughter named... There's only one name in the name bucket, Jen. It's on the tip of my tongue. Antonia. That's it. 
Maybe he decided he was entitled to a honeymoon. Maybe he just hadn't fucked about enough because that's pretty much what this was. In Athens, Antony made an attempt to live a simple life. He adopted Athenian dress, reduced his entourage to only a trusted handful, and spent his time attending lectures and religious festivals, exercising naked in a local gymnasium, enjoying the local food, and going to the theater. Can we just say, like, yeah, I'll just go and live in the simple life in Athens and eat all the most delicious food and just enjoy the incredible culture and, yeah, run away from my problems. Sounds perfect. That's basically what's happening right now. Yeah, I mean, maybe Mark Antony is onto something. We give him a lot of shit, but this sounds like a good plan. He just farmed his whole Parthia idea out to Ventidius right now. It's called delegating. Maybe Julius Caesar can come on and tell us that a good leader delegates. <laughs> Julius Caesar would prefer not to speak about that scoundrel. Julius Caesar, is he weeping about Cleopatra and Mark Antony right now? Yes. Oh, Julius Caesar, really? Oh, honey, come here, bring it in. Bring it in. Julius Caesar will be very happy when the scoundrel gets what he deserves. He's making my shirt all wet right now. Julius Caesar will continue to write his epic, beautiful, heart-rending poetry. Oh, you're working on your opus. Okay, I look forward to it. All right. Julius Caesar, go have some wine. Write your epic poetry. I hope it's better than the stuff you read to the pirates. Let's get back to our story. You poor thing. All right. There, there. Look, he had a rough year. It's only been two years since he was assassinated. He clearly didn't see that coming. The Athenians were good sports about it and took a page from the Alexandrian playbook, playing along with Mark Antony's common person affectations, pretending not to recognize him when he went out in the streets and probably peeped in their windows, you freak. He's just like he takes his rings off and he takes his cloak off and he wears like a regular shirt and he thinks that that covers it and people don't realize it's him. And this time, instead of having stamped across his forehead, returned to Cleopatra, it's just returned to Octavia. Does he know that that's on his forehead? (laughs) To be fair, he probably got so drunk. He was like, I don't know where I'm going. Point me in the direction of Octavia. I mean, he probably just fell down in the street a lot and actually had to be returned to Octavia or Cleopatra or whoever. Whoever he was with this time, Fulvia, we don't know. Cythera, Fulvia. The Athenians renamed their Pan-Athenic Festival Games after him and proclaimed him the new Dionysus once again. And... Here's the thing. Antony preferred to be addressed that way. Pretend you don't recognize him, but also refer to him as the new Dionysus. Where my man is at? Hold up. It's the new Dionysus. Where (laughs) my man is at? (laughs) Antony reveled in his title as the new Dionysus. Of course he did. What else would he be doing? I know. According to Stacey Schiff, he, quote, conspicuously built a hut of branches. This is what Antony was doing when he should have been invading Parthia. He built a hut of branches, decorated it with drums, tambourines, greenery, animal skins, and other Dionysian props, and lay inside with his friends beginning at dawn and got drunk. So, Jen, can we just go into a little bit more detail about the Dionysian props? Dionysus was associated with bulls, so there would have been some kind of, like, bull skull thing somewhere. He was also associated with his main ad, so there would definitely be some like beautiful but also dangerous looking women probably just like singing and chanting. Definitely some men dressed as satyrs with giant raging erections that never went down. They were just always out. Some grapes, some grapevines somewhere because he is the god of wine. Some panthers, because he's also associated with panthers. There would have been a thrusus, which was kind of like a staff wound with ivy and dripping with honey. 
Snakes are also associated with Dionysus because Dionysus, in addition to being the god of wine, was also a fertility god. He was a god of excess and orgiastic religious ecstasy. He's a god of madness. But nice, fun madness, right? Well, the Greeks believe in a lot of like balance, like everything in moderation. So the thing about wine and Dionysus is wine was seen as something that could take away all the pain of the world, could make you feel better, could help you sleep could ease anxiety and stuff like that. But if you drank too much of it, if you fell too deep into those cups, you could go right into madness. So it was both a good thing and a bad thing. And that's kind of what Dionysus was. He was both this god who could give you joy and allow you to be free. And also he could destroy you. And Dionysus, much like Apollo, flirts with this ridiculous beauty. And he is sort of both masculine and feminine. And we'll talk about all of this in the Dionysus episode. I don't want to like go into too much of a tangent here. But that is another thing that they're using slightly to emasculate Mark Antony. I kind of feel like um, probably Mark Antony was missing some of the uh, nuances of Dionysus when he took on this title, The New Dionysus, because my feeling is that Mark Antony was just honing in on the wine and revelry bit. Yeah, the other thing that we'll talk about when, when we get to our Dionysus episode, which is coming soon, is Dionysus was the god that people who rebelled against Rome, like Mithridates and Spartacus, took as their patron god. And the reason why is because Dionysus rolled up into your town and he fucked shit up. If you did not worship him, if you did not respect his godhood, he would destroy you. So basically giving Mark Antony this nickname was a little bit subversive in a way. In a way, it was a little bit subversive. Yeah. So Mark Antony really would have seen this as just like, hey, let me get my maenads. Let me get my satyrs with their raging erections. Let me get my grapevines. Let me get my panther. I got a panther. I feel like he would have been looking at the surface trappings of Dionysus and maybe not focusing in on the dangerousness of Dionysus as much, you know, because I feel like in a way it's kind of a backhanded thing where they're saying like Mark Antony is the one who's going to rebel against the power in Rome. But Mark Antony would have seen himself as the power in Rome. Absolutely. And also it's kind of one of those things where like Mark Antony is the god of drunken orgies. Like that's what that's how they're looking at it. And very much from his point of view, he would be thinking of Bacchus who kind of is is the god of drunken orgies, a bit less of this revolutionary god that the Greeks would have had. So Bacchus is the Roman version of Dionysus, but he is more about just being Cuervo man or something. Pretty much. The other thing that's interesting about him is Dionysus traveled the world. And that's also what Antony was doing. He was traveling through Asia and spreading his uh, new god status. Definitely spreading something. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so Antony has been lying in this tent with all these Dionysian props and accoutrements and possibly some panthers and things. And he's just lying in there getting drunk when he should be invading Parthia. The Athenians also proclaimed Octavia the new Athena. And there may have been some kind of symbolic marriage of their city because Athena was Athens' patron goddess to Dionysus. And Antony graciously accepted the honor and then turned around and demanded an outrageous payment from the city of Athens as a dowry for for his new bride. It's an asshole. He's such an asshole. My God. Yeah, that's about right. He's such a fucking train wreck. It's like, really? It's believed that Antony genuinely fell in love with Octavia and was deeply happy with her, which must have made everyone in Rome breathe a sigh of relief. Their plan to pacify Antony through love had worked. Plutarch claims Antony was, quote, very much in love with Octavia, being by nature excessively fond of women. 
Time passed in Athens, and before Antony knew it, it had been two years since he'd seen Cleopatra. And what was she up to during that time? Around the same time Antony married Octavia, Cleopatra gave birth to twins, and they were Antony's twins because that guy just cannot stop spreading it around. Yeah, but luckily Cleopatra got to name them because Antony wasn't around. (laughs) And they had great names. They were a boy and a girl. And she named them Alexander Helios after the sun and Cleopatra Selene after the moon. I actually think their names are really beautiful, but also very self-aggrandizing. Absolutely. She called one the sun and one the moon. The news of Antony's marriage most likely did not go over well with Cleopatra for both personal and political reasons. Cleopatra did not like Octavian. She hated that face. Hate that guy. Punch him. The guy Caesar had picked for his heir rather than her own son, Caesar's kid, Caesarian. I don't know what would have pissed her off more, Antony marrying someone else or renewing his alliance with Octavian. Does Julius Caesar have anything to say here? Julius Caesar thinks that the Lady Cleopatra is much better off without Antony. I figured you'd say that. Antony fucks anything and anyone anywhere. Well, this is rich coming from you. Would you like to try that again, Ms. Williamson? Oh, I think you heard me the first time. Didn't he learn this trick from you, this whole seducing of sophisticated women? Antony is not great at seducing sophisticated women. Oh? No, he can't keep them. Unlike Julius Caesar and Servilia. Servilia was an outside cat, though, wouldn't you say? Julius Caesar is an outside lion. Why do we have this guy on? He just comes on and he aggrandizes himself and then he goes in the corner and cries. Then he fucks off and cries over his bad poetry. I know. So... It's very likely that Cleopatra had spies among Antony's people and that she tracked his every move. Even without the personal aspect, Cleopatra was very politically astute and her standing depended on her relationship with Rome. She had to keep tabs on things and it's very possible the news of Antony's impending Parthia campaign raised her hopes because Antony would need her money to invade Parthia, new wife and daughter or no, Antony would be back. This reminds me of Hamilton, of the song, You'll Be Back, that King George sings when uh, America leaves. My favorite line of it is, I will send a fully armed battalion to remind you of my love. Oh, that (laughs) sounds like something Cleopatra would say. I mean, she will send a luxury yacht flotilla to remind you of her love. Exactly. We'll put it in the show notes. Like we said before, while Antony was in Athens, he sent a subordinate of his, a guy named Ventidius, to go drive the Parthians out of Rome's eastern provinces. Ventidius proved very successful. From late 40 to 38 BC, through a combination of strategy and subterfuge, he'd managed to deal the Parthians a resounding defeat, using sling bullets to attack the Parthians' impressive horse archers in the final battle. And the Parthians were a Scythian culture. If you want to know more about Scythians, we talk about them in Amazon's Warrior Women of the Ancient Steppe which is an older episode, but a good one. So Ventidius didn't take the battle into the Parthians' ancestral territory because he feared Mark Antony would never forgive him for stealing his glory. Now that Ventidius had softened them up for him, Mark Antony was ready to go to Parthia himself, finish up the job, and take all the credit. Oh, it's like he's been reading Pompey's playbook. I know, this is the Pompey playbook right here. So after about two years in Athens, hanging out with his new wife and daughter, Antony started getting ready for war. To pay all the troops he needed, Antony had to tax the populace. This raised the ire of Sextus, who'd gained some Roman provinces in the Treaty of Brundisium. Sextus rebelled, Octavian was stuck dealing with it, and suddenly both Antony and Octavian needed to share resources to win these battles they were both fighting. 
But over the past couple of years, after Antony's marriage from 40 to 38 BC, the relationship between Octavian and Antony had become increasingly strained. I can't imagine why. Antony's just fucking off in Athens and Octavian's doing all this work of ruling. Antony really does not want to have to do any work at this point in his life. Like, he's done. He's like, I'm 40, guys. Yeah, I'm going to have a year-long birthday party. Time for a sabbatical. You may all henceforth refer to me as the new Dionysus. You know what? I totally want to do that for my 40th. <laughs> I'm down. I'll be the new Isis to your new Dionysus, Jen. So you can absolutely understand why these two were not thrilled with each other. Even if there hadn't been the bad blood between them that went back to Julius Caesar's will, these two would have hated each other. They could not have been more different. Mark Antony was a manly sort of dude, big and muscular and robust, totally comfortable in the middle of a battle. And Octavian was kind of a coward because he was constantly calling out sick for his battles. Mark Antony had a big personality and kind of a rough and tumble charm. Animals and small children probably liked him. He no doubt exuded natural warmth. I kind of feel like this is kind of a thing about Mark Antony. Like, he was a big softie under there. Yeah. Yeah, he was a total war elephant. But underneath that, he just wanted to be loved. And he was just going to love whoever loves him, you know? He's like a big softie. For as long as they loved him. You kind of see that when he gets together with Octavia. She probably, like, showered him with love and he just ate it right up because he needed it. Yeah. Whereas Octavian was chilly and charmless and paranoid. He could not understand why the populace didn't love him no matter how much money and grain he showered on them. But despite all that, Octavian was a lot smarter than Mark Antony. And in all their interactions, big and small, Antony frequently came away confused as to what just happened, suspecting he'd somehow been outmaneuvered but unable to put his finger on how. Mark Antony had absolutely no guile. He was a straightforward kind of person. And Octavian was all guile. Stone cold Slytherin versus a Hufflepuff or Gryffindor. What do we think Mark Antony was? Gryffindor? Oh, probably a Gryffindor. Maybe a Hufflepuff. So Stacy Schiff tells us that, quote, somehow Octavian managed to best his elder, even in casual games of skill and chance. Whether the two bet on a cockfight or played cards, when they cast lots to decide political matters, if they tossed a ball between them, Mark Antony inevitably and probably wound up diminished. And it's easy to see why Octavian could spin any outcome to his advantage. If he lost excessive amounts at the gaming table, it was, he explained, only because he behaved with excessive sportsmanship. Adrian Goldsworthy, in his book, Antony and Cleopatra, tells us that Octavian continually undermined Mark Antony in more serious matters too. They just could not cooperate. He says, quote, if Octavian promised one thing, he delivered another. If Antony headed east, Octavian summoned him west, then neglected to appear. It made for a tenuous balancing act, but one that Antony was determined to maintain. He swallowed his pride and masked his irritation, even as his patience was rubbed raw. Over the past two years, for various reasons, Antony had swallowed his pride a lot around Octavian, which was why in 38 BC, when the two got together to negotiate an arms deal that was supposed to help them both, they couldn't even be in the same room together without fighting. It was Octavia who insisted on negotiating a peace. At this point, Octavia was pregnant with her second daughter with Antony. She insisted on coming with him on this excursion and further demanded that he send her to talk to Octavian. Look, no one else can talk to him but me. Just stop trying. I will handle it. 
She charmed Octavian's friends and then prevailed on Octavian's love for her, delivering an impassioned speech in which she reminded him that as wife of one imperator and sister to another, if there was war between them, it was gonna suck for her regardless of who won. So Octavian, who was so rarely moved by pity, was actually moved by pity, if you can believe it. He agreed to be on his best behavior and he met Mark Antony in the city of Tarentum. There, they hammered out an agreement to stay triumvirs and partners for the next five years. Octavian agreed to give Antony about 20,000 legions for the Parthian War, and Antony pledged to give Octavian ships for his war against Sextus. Octavia also persuaded Antony to throw in an additional 20 light sailing ships for Octavian. After that, Mark Antony was ready to take on the Parthians. He sent Octavia back to Italy with their daughter Antonia and the baby on the way. She also had the care of Antony's two sons with Fulvia, as well as her three children by Marcellus. Right, so the current count of children in Octavia's house, let's see, there's uh, two daughters with Antony, including the one that's coming, so that's basically two, and then two sons with Fulvia, those are Antony's kids, and then her three kids, that is uh, seven children in Octavia's house. Seven kids. Mark Antony never saw Octavia again. After seeing her off, Antony headed for Syria and then sent for Cleopatra. So that's it for this week. Join us in two weeks for the next installment in this story. And in the meantime, connect with us on social at Ancient Hist Fan on Twitter or Ancient History Fangirl on Facebook and Instagram. Also, if you want more of us in the meantime, we have Patreon, and you can listen to extra episodes just for subscribers. These are shorter episodes, mini-sodes, between 10 and 30 minutes. I mean, there's nothing mini about a 30-minute episode, but I digress. That's the thing about the mini-sodes. It's about us digressing. Exactly. And they deal with things that we didn't get to cover in our longer episodes. Starting at just $2 a month, you can subscribe and get more episodes from us in your feed. And for $10 a month, you can even suggest topics that we'll cover. And you can find it at patreon.com forward slash ancient history fangirl. This podcast isn't free to produce or maintain, and it also takes a lot of time. We can use all the help we can get. To keep it going. The Patreon is a great way to support the podcast, and you can also make a one-time donation to our Ko-Fi account. The link is on the homepage of our website at ancienthistoryfangirl.com, or you can check out our merch. We have some amazing merch, Jen, don't we? We really do, and if you're a fan of Julius Caesar, we have just the coolest Julius Caesar merch. We've got incredible Amazon's merch. I don't know if we'll have launched one of the ones that I'm thinking about right now, but there's something really exciting coming from an actual fan of the podcast and incredibly talented artist. I think that's Joy Taylor, and that would be the Pompey Shark merch, which we're really psyched about. It'll be out. Yeah, I think it will. And if you're not in a place to give money, we hear you. You can support us for free by leaving us a kind review. We can't tell you how much we love seeing reviews. It really makes this worth it. I mean, the positive reviews. If you don't like what we do, but you've actually listened all the way to the end of this episode, we don't need to know. You're probably either hate listening, or you really love us, or you secretly love us. It's okay to secretly love us. Julius Caesar hate listens. I'm pretty sure. All the time. So thank you so much for listening and we'll see you in two weeks. 